From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. On today's episode, we're going to turn our attention to children and the hard work being done by my guest, Rob Watson, and his colleagues to create a more equitable education system for young people in the United States. Rob is the Director for Partnerships and Community Impact at the Ed Redesign Lab and Secondary Lecturer on Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Prior to joining Ed Redesign, Rob served as a consultant and advisor to organizations that include the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, Harvard College, Tufts University, the Foundation for Louisiana, the Institute of Politics at Harvard Kennedy School, the Obama Foundation, and the Harlem Children's Zone. A former Peace Corps volunteer, Rob has co-founded five civil society organizations in Paraguay, including Teach for Paraguay. Back here in the States, he's partnered with the mayor, superintendent of schools, and community stakeholders from his hometown of Poughkeepsie, New York, to co-found the Poughkeepsie Children's Cabinet, which you'll hear more about in our conversation. Rob is a World Economic Forum global shaper and former Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Millennium Scholar. He holds a BA from Harvard College, a master's in education policy and management from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and a mid-career master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School. And Rob has accomplished all these things by the ripe old age of 35. Today, you're gonna learn more about Rob's remarkable background and life history as well as the optimistic attitude he brings to his work, both at Harvard University and his hometown, all geared towards improving the lives of young people and their communities. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Rob Watson, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill, uh, and, and hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Rob, you have a remarkable background and have worked on projects all over the world. You have a lot of options for how you could spend your time and career. So why have you chosen to work on equity in education and community supports for kids? I think the origins of, of why education in the United States and why I focus on this are really like a lot of us. We had a set of life experiences that um, really placed us on a trajectory to, to ask why are things the way they are and could they be different? Um, so I, I grew up the son of an, a Dominican immigrant mother and an African-American father. Uh, I grew up in public housing um, for almost the entirety of my K-12 schooling. I uh, grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, a small city in upstate New York. Um, and kind of like a lot of folks, tail of kind of different childhoods and communities. So I had the typical kind of hard experiences of seeing friends murdered and selling drugs and incarcerated and going to what is still one of the lowest performing school districts in New York State. But I was also raised by a village of educators, of aunties and uncles and parents and, 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 and extended community members who taught me that my purpose was tied to my community's purpose and that our fates and our destinies were intertwined and that there's a lot of ways to think about that. But education in the broader, I work, I, I wouldn't just say just education, but kind of really thinking about cradle to career and community wide approaches to children and youth are critical if we want to achieve the American dream that 
folks can be on pathways to upward mobility, that we can address our longstanding disparities in, in race and place and income. Um, and so I think that um, it's good work. And I think it's a it's a it's a piece to this puzzle of what it will take to um, transform society, transform American democracy and the lives of our kids and families. Well, you've talked about your parents and uh, growing up in Poughkeepsie and speaking of the American dream, could you tell us where you went after Poughkeepsie High School and, and uh, where you've been since? Sure. I was uh, I, I was lucky enough to um, be admitted to, to Harvard College as an undergraduate. So I went there for four years and um, during that time continued to um, explore my interests in social justice, education, community development. Um, and ultimately, after graduating, I uh, first I received a fellowship from the university to go to Brazil, to Rio de Janeiro, and did some service work there. But then I ultimately joined the Peace Corps in Paraguay and ended up serving there for three years. Um, and then um, ended up staying another four and a half after that. I uh, met my partner down there, uh, Amelia, who we now live here in Cambridge, Massachusetts with our two-year-old. Um, so service has been a real kind of part of my my origin story, the kind of work I saw my parents do in schools and churches on at the Pop Warner football games, kind of. Um, and uh, it's taken me on a journey living and working in uh, at least, I think, four or five countries now. Um, so it's been a really special uh, privilege to have had the opportunities I've had. And am I right that when you were in Paraguay, like you said, you were, you did extra time after Peace Corps and you helped start Teach for Paraguay on the Teach for America model? That's right. Yeah. So Teach for All is the um, is the global network that uh, Wendy Coburn, the founders of Teach for America and a bunch of other folks uh, across the globe started advancing these kind of Teach for models. So, that I, you know, it, I think when we joined, we were like the 40 something country in the world that had joined. Um, so yeah, I, it was myself and a, and a, and a small team of us who were young professionals and we, um, did kind of the work that's needed to join the network, uh, secure a partnership with the ministry of education. And now it's a fully fledged nonprofit, um, had dozens of folks who've served as teach for Paraguay members. It's got a executive director board and it's a self-sustaining organization. So yeah, I did that. And I also helped at the time the Paraguayan government start its first national youth service program. We received support. One of my great mentors and uh, colleagues, Susan Stroud, is one of the founders of AmeriCorps, who uh, was in the founding team in the White House under President Clinton. She actually helped us and a bunch of other folks from across the globe start that. So it's always been really compelling for me to kind of this work across borders and inspiration in different places um, to help co-create really exciting initiatives. Incredible. So so you met your partner in Paraguay. Somehow you convinced her to come back to the States. Is that uh, whose idea was that? Well, she's, she's, her father's Paraguayan and her, and her, and her mother's American. So she's already lived and worked in the U S and a lot of other places. So it wasn't too hard of a sound. She, she went to Harvard graduate school of education herself before I did. So, um, she's, so she's a, she's a globe trotter in her own right. But, um, yeah, we, we really enjoy kind of the, the, the kind of life we live where we get to be in touch with so many different places and people doing great work across the world. And am I right that you have not one, but two master's degrees? I do. I, uh, uh, did a master's in education at uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education and an MPA from Harvard Kennedy School. Listening to Rob describe his upbringing, it's easy to see why he's chosen his line of work. And soon you'll hear that it also explains some of the models he's developing and implementing. They involve supporting kids outside of school hours with a collaborative, community-based approach. Being raised not just by his parents, but also by aunties and uncles, 
and other families and friends left him believing, as he says, that, quote, my purpose is tied to my community's purpose, unquote. Now back to our conversation, starting with some background on how I was first exposed to Rob Watson. You and I first met, I was fortunate enough to do a fellowship at Harvard and, and audited your class with, with Professor Revel on collaborative action for children. Can you explain to us a couple of things? One is define collaborative action for children and what that model is. And then also you're part of the Ed Redesign Lab at Harvard School of Education, what that's all about and what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. So collaborative action is, is, is generally uh, what does it look like when people from different walks of life in sectors, business, schools, faith-based community, um, philanthropy, and others come together to create a common vision for, uh, in this case, children, youth, and families, and, and, and create population-level change. So really thinking about what does it look like for every kid in the city of Poughkeepsie, my hometown, to come to school kindergarten ready, or for everyone to graduate high school, or to have a post-secondary credential, or to be upwardly mobile? Um, so it's really about bringing key stakeholders together across sectors. Um, usually they form some sort of organization. It could be a children's cabinet. It could be what we call a backbone organization that says we want to bring all of the key stakeholders together from the librarian and the Pop Warner football coach to the mayor and the classroom teacher to the systems leader at the running the county government together to think about what it looks like to create a common vision for kids. So that the course is a lot about that. And, the, and there's a growing field around collaborative action, collective impact. Um, and then within those fields, kind of a group that are working on groups working on on these topics, particularly to support children, youth and families in, in whole child ways. So not just thinking about academics and, and, and achievement in that lens, but um, what happens with the whole child. So social emotional learning, access to after school and summer enrichment opportunities, health. Um, so really thinking about the multiple disciplines that, that, that create child well-being. At the Ed Redesign Lab at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where Senate I was founded by Paul Revel, um, our faculty director, um, who also I co-teach now this course that you took. And um, it's really about advancing a new paradigm in the United States around child and youth development. We have kind of two core pillars. One is this collaborative action pillar. So what does it look like to, to take a defined geographic area, a neighborhood, a city or a county and say, we have a common vision for kids. And we wanna think about it from cradle to career, from birth to adulthood and create the supports in and out of school so all kids thrive. Um, but we also need to have individualized supports for every child. So we just launched something called the new Institute for Success Planning that's about giving every kid a caring adult um, to accompany them in that cradle to career journey, an individualized plan that looks at their strengths and challenges in and out of school and creates a roadmap that's digital um, to connect them to a system of supports and opportunities in their community. So from the local YMCA swimming to high dosage tutoring, because we're just coming out of a pandemic, to I want to uh, go into a career in engineering and I'm a high school student, but I've never met an engineer in my life. How do we think about all the supports that we would give our own kids and ensure that every every child has that? So that's a bit of what we're doing at Redesign and we're working with partners across the country, communities, national organizations to really build this field, to reimagine equity through this cradle to career approach. You mentioned equity too. Uh, you and Paul imparted some great wisdom on all of us. One was, I remember Paul saying it more than once, 
that when it comes to some of these programs, you you look at what the wealthy families are able to do for their kids and try to create those same opportunities for everybody, whether that's after school, summer programs, tutoring, meeting an engineer, all that stuff. It seems like uh, you all are trying to put a level playing field together for everybody, no matter what their background. I think that's right, Bill. And I, I would say that that's been a distinguishing element of my journey was I had poverty in terms of experience, poverty in terms of income and, 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 and environment in certain circumstances, but I also had a wealth of, of, of exposure of relationships that I think made all the difference in who I got to become. And when you hear a lot about folks who just in immensely difficult odds were able to kind of beat the odds, it was often these kinds of relationships of support. It was having that person in your corner. It was somebody who was that mentor. It was someone who said, oh, you can do something different. And what we talk often about our lab is not about beating the odds, but changing the odds. So we don't just create, it's not just about outliers, but it's about designing a system that meets children where they are and give them what they need. And we often say, you'll recall this, that between kindergarten and 12th grade, kids spend 80% of their waking hours outside of school, only 20% in school. And yet we expect schools to resolve everything. Um, one really p- interesting piece of data that's come out, I think, since you took the course from a colleague at Harvard, Raj Chetty, is the greatest determinant we know to date of to what extent a low-income kid will rise to the middle class, a greatest predictor of that is not even a good school. It's to what extent that low-income kid has friendships or relationships with people who are non-low-income, social capital. Um, so Raj did a whole bit, was on the front page of New York Times last summer. Um, so there's a lot happening, I think, in our field, too, around it's not that schools are not critical. They are not sufficient, and we need a broader sense of how we are going to support families and young people if we want to achieve the American dream. Rob mentioned the work of Raj Chetty around the value of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds being exposed to each other and how young people from disadvantaged situations have a better chance of achieving success if they grow up with at least some exposure to people with more resources. If you haven't already read Professor Chetty's work, I highly recommend it. I'd also add that there's a lot to be gained for people with more means to get to know people with less better understand and appreciate their lives and struggles. And I really like the phrase Rob used here, not beating the odds, but changing the odds. It's an optimistic take that the game itself doesn't need to be static. We can adjust the rules and change the odds to create more equity and better outcomes for more people. Getting back to Rob's personal story, I wanted to dig a little deeper and I asked him about what the biggest influences were on him when he was growing up. For me, I was I was extremely lucky because it started with my parents. So my I grew up um, with my mother and my stepfather um, living with them in public housing, and I had, and I have uh, six younger siblings um, from my mom and my stepfather, and another sibling from my my father and uh, a former partner of his. So I they both all three of them um, injected into me like this fierce belief that I was capable of anything. And um, my father was the one really who was, uh, he grew up in the city of Poughkeepsie himself um, from an African-American family that came from the South. Um, And uh, he was an educator. He went from being a custodian at our local high school as a teenager, as a part-time job to 
Um, he became superintendent of schools at one point. He was a principal and educator. So I, I grew up between my mom's household and his. He was somebody who always believed in the passion education, was the first person ever brought up a Harvard and always took me and um, my sister, his his daughter, to visit college campuses since we were young. So I I, I had the I had the benefit of having grown up in both a very um, high poverty household, but also having some of the exposure that typically middle-class kids get. And I think that that really created kind of this mix of opportunities and exposure that helped kind of center my kind of my justice nerve to care about these things, but also to expose me to like a path that was different. So I did have other adults, coaches and teachers and that, and, and that along the way that helped guide my journey. But I was lucky in the sense that I had kind of um, parents and then, you know, aunts, uncles, others who all um, poured into me this belief that if you, if you, if you give it your best shot and if you, and if you're, you know, smart and about how you approach things, there's nothing you really can't do. And it sounds cliche, but that was really the message I got. Well, and having a dad who worked his way up to superintendent, that could go both ways for the child. I could either say, boy, I really want to be in education or that is the last thing I want because I know being a superintendent in a public school system is really tough. So what was it that you saw about his work and his, his climb to that position that said, you know what, I want to do something around education as well, as opposed to going off with some of your Harvard classmates to Wall Street or consulting firms or the other opportunities you surely would have had? Yeah, I suspect like a lot of my best and and most painful memories are at the are around public education. I remember when my father was my my sixth grade principal and the joy he helped bring to a, a our Poughkeepsie Middle School, which to this day has a ton of challenges. And but there was a moment when he was principal and he came on and, and it was really I saw the teacher morale change. I remember being a kid in that school and kids who are from the most difficult challenge households, their demeanor change. I got to see up close what like building a community in a school and beyond the school looked like. But I also got to see really hard things about, you know, schooling. And I was lucky because I, you know, I got to see the kids that I started school with. And then each year went by. Then when I went into kind of the honors and the AP track and other friends didn't, even though we lived in the same neighborhood. So I got to see kind of that juxtaposition throughout. And, um, you know, I, I think it just, again, my, my, the, I always was like taught to like find my purpose. Like it, it was always so. So there was always this sense that like you know you, your 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 gifts and your privileges and the affordances you have, whether they're natural gifts or ones you just work really hard to accumulate, um, you, it ain't just about you. And if you think that's the case, you're lost. So I think naturally seeing him, but also my mother in the church, she did a ton of stuff in the church. My stepfather was a pop winner football coach. He was also a corrections officer in prisons in upstate New York. It was just, I was getting it from all, all angles. So I think the question of like, our community is only as good as how we treat our kids and our families was like a central message always for me. And it was just a matter of like how I would go at that question. Would it be through a school? Would it be through a nonprofit? Would it be through a mix of all of the above? And now I think I've kind of, I'm kind of this cross-sector leader trying to do it through, through multiple angles. Listening to the words Rob uses to describe his upbringing, you can hear the optimism come through when he says he developed, as he describes, a fierce belief that I was capable of anything. And in terms of the work he's chosen to pursue, you can tell it's fueled by the maxim he lays out, that our communities are only as good as the way we treat our kids and families. Turning back to our conversation, I mentioned to Rob that in the class he's co-teaching, I learned about a really intriguing model of which he's a champion, the children's cabinet. 
I learned about children's cabinets taking a Paul Rebels class a few years before you at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And Paul has been a great mentor and supporter of so many of us. Basic idea was creating a local uh, group, and then sometimes it spins off into an organization of sorts that where you bring together local leaders who are vested in improving the lives of kids together from different walks of life and from different institutions. So I helped co-found the Poughkeepsie Children's Academy in my hometown. We launched it and it was co-founded by our mayor and our superintendent of schools. We have an executive committee where you have college presidents and parent leaders and nonprofit folks and the president of the teachers union and the local library system. So it was really about bringing folks together to create a common vision for kids, in this case, cradle to career. So that's how we started. Our, our children's cabinet started in February of 2020, one month before this little known thing called COVID-19. Um, but it turned out to be a great resource for our community during COVID and beyond. Um, and now we're actually years later evolving. We're going to create a, a, the cabinet's going to become a standalone 501c3 nonprofit. So cabinets are, are meant to be these. It's kind of the situation room for kids, right? Like how do you how do you leverage the assets in the community that you have to move the needle in targeted ways for kids? And where there's gaps, where things are not, the resources aren't there, the talent isn't there. How can you use this collective brain trust to to move the needle on longstanding challenges? So that that's the charge. We got a lot of work to do in Poughkeepsie, but there are a lot of people doing this work across the country further along than we are that we're learning from. But um, children's cabinets fundamentally are about, again, creating a community-wide approach to child and, and youth well-being. And it seems w- one of the things that's is different about it is back to what you said before about kids spending 80% of their time outside of school, which is always an eye-opening statistic. And then you start doing the math and it makes total sense between summers and after school and everything else. So much of a child's development happens outside of school. So versus a school board, which by definition is focused, you know, a bunch of volunteers for the most part who are focused on what happens in school, a children's cabinet is really surrounding everything surrounding children in that community and and getting folks around the table, like you said, from all walks of life who might help in the development of children. Is that a good way to think about it? Absolutely. And and it's about a paradigm shift fundamentally in how we think about whose job it is to, 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 to ensure the prosperity of our children. Is it just the teacher and the principal and the school district's job, or is it all of our job? And should we all put skin in the game? And should all of our institutions commit something? We all want, you know, our kids to thrive, but to, to expect schools to do it alone is, is um, I think it's been proven in the pandemic, only proved it even more clearly. It's just, it's just not a sufficient intervention. So it, it really is about how can we come together as a community across our differences and, and, and sometimes leveraging them in good ways to, to, to do what's right by our, our young people and families. So if someone's listening right now and they're in a community where they think, gosh, this is a cool concept, but how in the world would I ever start this? How in the world do you ever start it? What did you do in Poughkeepsie? Did you just, I mean, start making calls? Did you, did you lay out the case to, and to whom? How, how does one go about doing that? Because once you hear the model, it makes such sense but you've got to start somehow and it, it's not easy. And I'm sure you had people who wanted to be on the cabinet that might not have made the most sense and people that you wanted who said no. I mean, how does how do you get through that? Sure. Well, we we started like uh, that good quote. Uh, it's always a small committed group of dedicated citizens. You know, that's the only thing that's ever changed the world. I can't remember who was the first. There's been a few folks. I can't remember who was the first. One. But um, it was that. I mean, it was myself, two colleagues, James Watson, a Poughkeepsie native and Kylan Greer, who grew up in the city of Poughkeepsie, went to the public school system with me. She was a couple years younger than me at the high school. And a few others um, who 
were exposed to this idea of children's cabinets and grew up in our community, saw like a lot of the strength of the community, but also the challenges. Um, and we decided to organize a summit on August of 2019 called the Poughkeepsie Summit at Harvard. We, we used a catchy name to get folks to leave the city of Poughkeepsie, come off site. To, I was working at the Harvard Kennedy School at the time um, and um, come off site for two and a half days, I believe. And um, talk about some of the big challenges our community was facing and the opportunities in front of us. Two, two convening topics were uh, creating a collective impact approach to, to kids and youth. Um, and the other was how can we attract and retain talent to the city of Poughkeepsie in the Mid-Hudson Valley region in New York State. Um, so we had reduced brain drain and the, the flight of young professionals and kind of a message that a lot of people told me growing up, which was leave Poughkeepsie and don't look back. Um, so those were the two convening topics we put in front of our local leaders, um, folks from the Ed Redesign Lab. I wasn't working there at the time, and they shared what was happening across the country. And I think what was critical about that moment that I think is true of a lot of the efforts I know across the country, whether it's a children's cabinet or a backbone or whatever is the name that a local community is using, is a big part of this work is exposing local leaders who are committed and doing compelling work anyway to what's possible through coming together in these type of ways to go further than any of us can go by ourselves within our own organization or program or silo, that there's some sort of value add to what we all care about when we join forces. Um, and so for us, it was having that small group of local champions. We all had relationships in different segments of the communities. We then had those relationships help us in reaching out to others formed the cabinet. We had two leaders at the time, our mayor and superintendent, who also were really compelling as kind of conveners with us of this. Um, but ultimately, I think it was that that critical mass of a few, three, four people who said, we want to come together and think creatively about this. But then having the opportunity to, to have the exposure to what was happening across the country around this. And I think much like we want that young child to know there's a whole world possible out there for them. People doing social change work need hope too. Um, I was with um, Jeffrey Canada a few weeks ago with a, a 18 city of Poughkeepsie leaders at the Harlem Children's Home for two and a half days. His team is, is supporting us on a cradle to career strategic plan. And he said, despair is infectious, but hope is too. And I think to this point of this podcast you got here, but I think like optimism uh, to create the optimism we want, you have to expose people to what's possible despite the many challenges we face in the day to day. And so it's not obvious that we create the exposure moments to like level up what people think is possible. So one of the big things I think we've done these past few years is just expose local leaders as a world out there outside of Poughkeepsie where a lot of cool things are happening. A lot of people like us, um, lay people who just care. And um, let's learn. And we have a lot of great things going on in our community, but we can learn a lot from others. And, and often doing that, a lot of serendipity ensues. Oh, that's beautiful. <clears throat> and Jeffrey Canada is what a great model. And just like the human embodiment of, of optimism from everything I've ever seen of him and his work. So that's that's the Harlem Children's Zone, it's called, I think. So that's something that so someone wants to learn more about his work that's there. Is there information about the Poughkeepsie Children's Cabinet that people can access online or others around the country you'd point people to as examples? Sure. Yeah. We're Poughkeepsie Children's Cabinet. You can just Google us and you'll find the, I think it's pkchildrenscabinet.org. The Harlem Children's Zone is really the the pioneering organization. And in many ways is kind of the, the, 
the inspiration for this whole field, what um, Jeff and, his, and the amazing team has done there. Um, they, had, they, they were so successful in Harlem. They, they recently launched the William Julius Wilson Institute at Harlem Children's Zone, which is now supporting communities across the U.S. in this field building work. And I'm, 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 I'm uh, privileged enough to work with them and receive support from them through um, the Poughkeepsie effort as well. And um, they're really helping communities grapple with what does it look like to tackle these messy problems, but uh, create a pathway forward through this cradle to career approach. Um, and I'm also lucky at the at Redesign Lab here at, at Harvard to to be doing the same thing as well. So I I, I think um, you know for folks who are thinking about this, you know definitely there's a field, there's a movement happening across the U.S. and there's different organizations, Harlem Children's Zone, Purpose Built Communities, Strive Together. There's Partners for Rural Impact doing this in a rural context. So there's a, there's an emerging field happening here. We talk about it often with uh, Paul Revor, um, you know the way social entrepreneurship became a field. Um, and folks at the top business school started saying, you know, um, I think it was Milton Friedman who was like, you know, it's only, it's only like markets are only meant to make profit. It's like, no, you can, you don't have to make that false choice. And that became a whole field. Um, is the same way this kind of cradle to career um, collaborative action uh, field is emerging with um, schools continuing to be critical, but a broader, bolder um, cross-sector approach to, to, to supporting families on the ground. Rob makes it clear that schools can only do so much, and that given that the vast majority of a young person's life is spent outside of school, we have to surround them with support well beyond the classroom. He also talks about Jeffrey Canada, and if you've not heard of him or the work he's done with the Harlem Children's Zone, you might want to get online and learn more about it. He's a remarkably optimistic and inspiring person, and I loved his quote that Rob shared here, that... Despair is contagious, but hope is too. Back to Rob, moving from talking about younger students, I asked him to reflect on what it's like for him, a graduate of the Harvard School of Education, to now teach students there. I think working at, 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 in graduate school is with graduate school students is incredible because it's I'm not too far removed from that experience myself. When we, you know, I'm 35 years old and I, it's, I've done my master's recently in my 30, so it's 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 been very fun to just see students who are grappling with the same questions I've grappled with and continue to um, to be helpful to people who have places or issues they care about and are trying to make those connections between what they are learning about in school and an actual topic or a place that they want to apply those learnings to. I think because I've re- I'm a recent kind of graduate of several master's programs in the last I don't know six, five six years. I also think it. I, I have a student, still a student perspective on the teaching and learning and like how to like what what really sticks and, and, and how we should make good choices. So I, I really have found it tremendously rewarding um, and also just to be someone who can help be a connector, make con- connections for students. It's like, oh, I had a student from like from Salt Lake. They were like really interested in this work. They're like, oh, I would love to know. I was like, well, do you know about this cross-sector initiative happening in your hometown? Like, oh, no, I didn't. And, you know, we can facilitate those relationships. So Paul, who I co-teach with, is a master of that. And I try to do the same, which is um, really support people in their journeys and in their careers to find the spaces and the places that um, will bring meaning to them based on their interests. Well, one of the things I think you you personally do particularly well 
is you straddle that line between academia and actually rolling up your sleeves and doing the work. I know it can be it can be frustrating sometimes for students, and I think maybe even more so graduate level. Maybe not. Eh, maybe more undergraduate. But you sit in class and you say, well, this person's never actually gone out there and done this or what are they, it's all just academic and it's not real world, you know, get your hands dirty kind of stuff. And somehow, I don't know when you sleep because I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I don't know how you get it all done, but, you know, helping, helping out, you know, co-teaching a class, Poughkeepsie, which is a bit of a drive, uh, you know, children's cabinet, you know, how you get it all done. Um, but I would think that's something that you really bring. I know it. I've seen it. It's something you really bring to the class. And I wonder if you still do this. When I went through it a year ago, um, students actually got to work very directly with folks in Poughkeepsie and then also Chelsea, Massachusetts, I recall, was the other city. I was on the Poughkeepsie team. And actually get to, in, the, in our case, it was Zoom, Zoom with these folks who were in there every day doing it. Is that still part of the the class? And I and. If not, I hope it is again in the future because I, I thought that practical hands-on stuff was really powerful. No, you know, yeah, no, we we definitely, the, the course remains a, a field course. So um, obviously you took it during the pandemic and another phase in the pandemic where we were um, doing an online version. We just did it again this past fall and it was an in-person version. And we worked with um, Chelsea, Massachusetts, again in Cambridge, Massachusetts this time actually as well. So we had, I, I, uh, Paul ran point on the Cambridge team and I ran point on the Chelsea. So, you know, we, we had visits to the, to the community. Um, students are working on different projects and interdisciplinary teams. So it, it's great. And I, that's what I really enjoy about the course is it's okay. Uh, we've learned about all these amazing concepts and I buy your argument. Yeah. We need to bring people together to solve these big, messy problems. But what do I do when I wake up on Monday morning and um, I'm with this local community with people who are trying to do the work, but they have to limited time. People have families. There's a lot going on. Like, how do we move the work forward? So I think it's a really great hands-on experience for students. Um, and that's like a core component of the course. So I can't see that changing. So yeah, it's been done in person and virtually. I, I took the course back in the day um, and I worked with uh, Revere, Massachusetts. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And I think um, we're continuing to get better at it, but it's really enjoyable to um, students get to actually deliver projects and deliverables to the cities they're working with at the end of the semester. Your work has um, also obviously predated and now post-dated, if you will, if we're out of that pandemic, let's hope we are. How have things changed? I think in some ways, depending on the field and education is probably one, the pandemic uh, made problems that were already there more obvious to people you know, disparities, those sorts of things. In some ways, there are silver linings in terms of, you know, the way you and I are communicating today and Zoom and telemedicine and maybe remote learning, that sort of thing. How do you think the pandemic has impacted public education, people's views of it, people's involvement in it or lack thereof? What's changed given these sort of seismic few years that we've just lived through? Yeah, it's so funny. I feel like on a daily basis, it's a pendulum swing between this kind of hope and despair paradigm that I was speaking to earlier. Like, I feel like on the one hand, the salience of the lack of a social safety net in the United States and even some of the uh, federal investments that happened through the American Rescue Plan and other moves, I think people really saw the value in it. And there's this hope that, you know, this kind of never waste a good crisis refrain has happened. And I think there's been a lot of communities who've leveraged this unbelievable tragedy to do incredible reimagining of different, 
you know, you know, issues and projects that they care about for, for, for local residents. On the other hand, I think there's this profound fatigue that is set in on the, on the public health realities of the pandemic itself. Um, this isn't going away on um, our kids are so behind and we, and all the progress we made over the last 15 years is now gone. And I think depending on where you are and depending on the day, you know, the burnout of teachers and the teacher shortage, you know, like there's just so many things going on, our, our, our ever polarizing democracy, um, at least at the national level. So I think, you know, there's, there's huge progress that's been made in some areas. Um, but there's also this undertone of, of fatigue and, 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 and hopelessness in some ways that I think we have to reckon with. Um, and I think, you know, part of being in the field I'm in is, is rec- reckoning with that mixed bag and showing a pathway forward and, 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 and pointing the places, actual places where people live, where local leaders came together and got wins on the board that, are, that build momentum and prove it can be done. I think that's um, a part of the work is we have to elevate where this is working um, and how people have been able to figure this out in the face of immense odds. Rob's phrase, reckoning with that mixed bag and showing a pathway forward, is a great description of the role of true optimists. They understand that things are far from perfect, but they grapple with that knowledge and try to set a path towards a better future. And I think that with life's mixed bag, it's really important to stop every once in a while and take stock in your wins. Any victories, big or little, that you've achieved in the work that you're doing, It was in that spirit that I asked Rob about whether he could point to any wins in the short period of time since his Poughkeepsie Children's Cabinet was formed. You mentioned wins on the board. You started the Poughkeepsie Children's Cabinet at a tough time right before the pandemic. So you haven't been at it very long. To me, there's a win just of having set it up and gotten the people around the table and focused on it. Do you have specific wins that you can point to or things you say, okay, we've already done this, you know? What's next? You know, what, what are the next things? Are there are there wins you can point to already? Sure. So when we got started, there was like emergency COVID response wins we got. So that was like, you know, March 2020, you know, we convened our children's cabinet and the school district sends every kid home like everywhere in the world. And, um, you know, low income kids, we didn't have access to digital devices or Internet. So we were able to raise as a cabinet one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a few days handed that check to the superintendent of schools to get more laptops because the state aid hadn't come through yet to get, provide one-to-one devices to every child. Our library director raised his hand, had 50 Wi-Fi hotspots on reserve, handed that to the school district to help support families that didn't have internet. So we got quick wins. We then um, knew that there was a ton of federal aid and state aid coming to families who were experiencing hardship, but access to information was a problem. So we had to create um, COVID-19 response guides in English and Spanish for our community members. And we tried to embed that at food pickup for, for um, families so we could really make sure everyone was aware of the uh, benefits and supports that were available to them to community. We held um, community-wide town halls with the mayor and superintendent on these things. So we had a whole set of things on like COVID-19 response that was like, if we come together as a community, we are greater um, than the sum of our parts, right? Like that, like that we can prove it. Can be. So that was like phase one, if you will. Phase two was, okay, we've done that and we need to start thinking more about the kind of systems failures that the pandemic just exacerbated. So um, we partnered with um, the City Connects program at Boston College um, on this idea I talked about earlier, success planning. What if every child had an individual plan to help them with their in-school and out-of-school needs? So we um, piloted that 
um, into the Poughkeepsie Middle School with a grade to see what it would look like to provide um, students with an x-ray of how they're doing in and out of school and have an adult whose job it is, is to connect them to the greater set of offerings in the community, whether it's mental health or after school programs um, or other kinds of enrichment opportunities. So that's now growing. Um, that happened about a year and a half ago, and we partnered with our county government and our school system to launch that. We held, we convened two citywide working groups in early childhood and out of school time to really understand at a deeper level why disparities were playing out in those areas. We worked to advocate for our city government, a small city government, to create its first ever uh, division of youth opportunity. Um, the cabinet helped co-author legislation that was later approved by the city council. Um, and the cities like Poughkeepsie, you know, historically the city governments handle police, uh, potholes, sewer, right? Like they're not creating full-blown youth development staffing. And now um, we recently hired our first uh, uh, division of Youth Opportunity Director. That was a community effort that helped really ha have that happen. And now we're going, we're really swinging for the fences. We're creating the standalone 501c3 with the support of the Harlem Children's Zone. We're developing a 10-year cradle-to-career strategic plan that's going to bring our early childhood providers, our after-school and summer providers, our college and career folks together and say, we need to create a common um, continuum of supports and services so no kid can fall outside of a our ecosystem of support for kids. We're going to measure data on each child. And we're going to look at population level outcomes like kindergarten readiness or college graduation or employment. And we're going to figure out what we need to do together to move the needle for kids and families. So the sophistication is growing, but we still every day have to live with the real challenges of of what it looks like to do this work. But um, we have a lot of things we can point to. And more than any one initiative, I'd say the fact that the mayor and the superintendent now pick up each other's calls and are working together collaboratively is an example. That just didn't happen in our community before. The city and the school district didn't work together that closely. The fact that our county government has now stepped up, which has more resources than both of them, and said, we're going to get on board on this. The fact that our biggest philanthropy is now saying, I'm putting, you know, like it's really the, the, our direct service providers are, are connecting with communities across the country trying to do the same thing. It's that cohesion that um, we aren't guaranteed to succeed, but I think we're guaranteed to not make the same exact mistakes we've made before. And I, I feel good about that. I like our odds. We're not there yet, but I, I like our odds. That's quite a list of wins. And and it's interesting you talked earlier and you said it again that this is going to turn into a 501c3 because as you describe these wins, particularly when you said raising that money at the beginning of the pandemic, that's often what a 501c3 organization's board of trustees would do. Part of your job often is to raise money. It's usually not, I can think if ever, the job of a school board to do that. School board has the city funds. It works on a budget, works on legislation, that sort of thing. So what you've done, I think, is created a whole new model. It's essentially a, uh, like you're, you're turning it into a nonprofit that is focused on surrounding children with support. And if it means raising money is part of that, that's something that you do. And in some ways, it probably... I'm just providing great cover for the school board too, to focus on what they need to do. And that now that you've got this set up, it's not just going to be responsive in times of crisis, like a, like a pandemic, but day-to-day -day ins and outs. And it, it's a really incredible model. And in some ways, maybe it was fortunate that you started during the pandemic. I, I think that's right. And I think a lot of folks use this term in our field and in other fields, but the concept of civic infrastructure um, we've got roads and ridges and tunnels and we and 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 you know all sorts of you know physical infrastructure that define the built environment in our lives and that we all share together. Um, the extent to which our civic infrastructure is strong or not often can determine the fate of what happens to our community. So 
you need you need an organization. You need people who are waking up every day and going, I'm not only going to run an early childhood program, but I'm going to help the early childhood programs get better at delivering services or get better at measuring the impact of their work, or I'm going to help the fact that Poughkeepsie has a declining young professional population where we need to develop a strategy to attract and retain young professionals to our area. You know, so we call this like backbone in our field, backbone organization, these organizations that are looking at the whole ecosystem and thinking about what are the strategic supports that different institutions and sectors need to address the long, the longstanding kind of um, structural things that impact their ability to execute on what they care about. And so I think that's what's eluded us on Poughkeepsie for a long time. There's a lot of people who care about kids, but a lot of people maybe didn't, weren't, weren't able to like look at the whole landscape and go, oh, these are the three biggest things families are facing around early childhood access. Or, oh, actually only 2% of our kids in Poughkeepsie City School, School District's high school have access to an individualized coach to help them apply to college. Oh, so maybe that's why our kids aren't applying to college, because there's no one helping them. And, and kids of means have people who they hire to help them. And our guidance counselors have 400 to 1 ratios. You know, So it's th- that kind of systems level thinking and analysis that I think backbone organizations are, are poised to do. And that's what we're trying to do with our children's academy. To be honest, I didn't expect Rob to have such a long list of wins for his cabinet's work given it hasn't been in existence long and since it was formed during such a challenging time. But did you hear the pride and enthusiasm in his voice as he rattled them off? Just think about how contagious his attitude must be with the people sitting around that cabinet table doing such hard work. And despite acknowledging the uphill battle for Poughkeepsie schools and challenges like a 400 to 1 student to guidance counselor ratio, he's able to say that he, quote, likes our odds. And now, a wrap-up of my conversation with Rob Watson. You're an incredibly inspiring person. Your work is incredibly inspiring. And I'm sitting here wondering, and I've teased you before about politics. I'm never sure if that's always the best use of people's times. So you're going to get a lot done. But what do you, you're so busy, you might not think much about this. But what's next for Rob Watson? I mean, where where is this going? You're you're a young guy. You're You're raising a family. But... What's 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 in your future? Do you think, or are you, are you just so focused on on today and tomorrow that you don't think much about that? No, I come on. I'd be well. One, I appreciate you, 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 you thinking highly of me in these ways. I I just try to do my part, and much gratitude and inspired by everything you're doing here with Optimism Institute. I uh, I me and my partner talk about this a lot, and we like to think of our life in chapters. I don't think either of us want to do the same thing forever. We um, you know, there was a time when I my central focus was on youth development and service in Paraguay. And then it was back to Poughkeepsie. And now it's Poughkeepsie plus the, all the communities ag- across the U.S. I'm working with. And tomorrow might be something different. I've also done stuff on democracy and civic engagement. So, so I, I mean, I, I like to think of, sometimes I'm more focused on democracy work. Sometimes I'm more focused on kind of poverty and education work. I kind of see my, 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 my life in action, you know, what is, is, is elected office, something down the road. I don't, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, it's something like anything you think about where you're best positioned to make change in the world. But I, uh, Paul, Paul Revel talks often about the zigzag of, of, the, of, of folks like us who lived a lot of lives. And I'm kind of happy and content with the like adventure of letting things play out the way they're going. And, you know, but I do know that no matter what I do, I always want to um, be at the, at the forefront of things that are consequentially improving um, society in some way 
whether it's, um, you know, helping low-income kids rise to the middle class or whether it's making the democracy better um, and, and work for all people. So whatever the issues are, I, I just know that I want to be at the forefront of things like that. And I, and I know you will be. And you said you have a son? A daughter, Maya, two-year-old daughter, uh, Maya, who, uh, as any parent knows, it, it, it helps you grapple all over again with if you work in this world trying to improve the lives of kids and families having a child of your own it just takes things to a whole other level but such a such a joy yeah and i bet you know too because you i asked you about your inspiration and it was you started with your parents and watching your dad work his way up to superintendent and whether you know it or not and she's only two but she's she knows what you're up to and she's observing it and uh there's a there's a bit of a circle of life thing happening here because i think the you were inspired by your own parents, and I guarantee you, you're inspiring Meyer with everything you're doing. You've inspired, I know your students, my wife and I, who uh, who who audited your class. Just all I can say is keep up the great work. You're a great inspiration, and I really appreciate as busy as you are, you're taking the time to talk to me today. No, likewise, Bill. And yeah, I mean, it is it is something else to have a little one. I think it keeps us honest, and I I think more. I think again for all of us who are parents who I have privilege, I think it just only further begs the question of, I want everyone to get a, the, the same affordances that my daughter has. So it it only regrounds me in what the amazing kind of things she gets to live and the relationship she already has. She's been in more countries already than I've been to until I was an adult. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really powerful thing, but I also think it begs the question of how can we make it not about luck? How can we eliminate luck from the equation and just create a society that treats kids and families well? And wherever you are in the political spectrum, I think we all want um, we all want for our kids what, you know, we, we want for society. I, I'd hope, right? Like we, we, so I, I think there's a, there's an opportunity there for us to continue to get better. Well, Rob, you're an inspiration. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me on my podcast. No, thank you. And, uh, I'm optimistic after this one. So you got, you got to, <laughs> I was already on, on your side, but you got, you got a convert out of me. So keep going. This is, this is deeply needed in, in, in the country and in communities everywhere. So just much gratitude to you for doing this. You got it. Thanks, Rob. Once again, Rob uses classic language for an optimist. He describes the adventure of letting things play out the way they're going to. Not the scariness, not the panic, but the adventure. I love that. And it's great to hear how open Rob is to a variety of pursuits down the road, as long as he can be at the forefront of improving society and, as he says, to help to not make it about luck. I hope our conversation today has given you some ideas about what we all can do to improve the lives of kids and families, and that you find Rob's brand of can-do optimism as inspiring as I do. I also hope you'll listen to more episodes of Blue Sky. And if you could take a few minutes to give us a review or a rating, we'd really appreciate the feedback. And also, please consider following The Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.